Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and producer of Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students on the Forced Migration and Refugees course at LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the experiences of refugees themselves. In this episode, Leah Trotman chats with Pablo Escribano, the Regional Thematic Specialist at the International Organization for Migration for the Americas and the Caribbean on Climate Change and Migration. The International Displacement Monitoring Center reported that nearly 3 million people across the Caribbean and the United States were displaced in 2017 due to hurricanes Irma, Maria, and Harvey. With a rise in global warming, small island developing states can expect an increase in sea levels, the severity and frequency of hurricanes, and other climate shocks that influence population movement. With a majority of the Caribbean's population situated within one and a half kilometers of the coast, gaining a better understanding of what climate-induced migration looks like in the region is crucial. Leah hails from the U.S. Virgin Islands and is completing the Health and International Development Program at LSE. Leah is also the U.S. Virgin Islands' first Marshall Scholar and a Truman Scholar. At LSE, Leah focuses on the intersection of climate change and health in the Caribbean, a topic she began researching following her junior year in undergrad. Her most recent work looks at forced migration due to climate change and its impacts on youth mental health. I hope you enjoy the episode. In 2018, the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center reported that nearly 3 million people across the Caribbean and United States were displaced in 2017 due to hurricanes Irma, Maria, and Harvey. With the impending rise in global warming, small island developing states, also known as SIDS, can expect a continued increase in sea levels, the severity and frequency of natural disasters like hurricanes, and other climate shocks that influence population well-being, development, and most relevant for this podcast, movement. Considering a significant majority of the Caribbean population, their livelihoods, cities, and critical infrastructure are situated just miles off the coast, it's especially important we gain an understanding, a better understanding of what climate-induced migration currently looks like in the region, why gaps exist in the protection for climate-displaced populations, and what are some proposed durable solutions for today and tomorrow. So with that in mind, I am so eager to chat with my guest, Pablo Escribano. Based in San Jose, Costa Rica, Pablo currently serves at the International Organization for Migration as their regional thematic specialist on the environment, migration, and climate change in both the Americas and Caribbean. Pablo, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much again for joining. All right, so I think we're gonna just go ahead and jump in and start um, broadly with some general trend questions. So um, if you can, what is the current state of displacement due to climate change and environmental factors in the Caribbean? Right, so so thank you very much. I mean, that that's obviously re requires us to look very generally at, at what are the impacts of, of climate change on, on, on mobility and, and understanding that displacement is a sort of mobility that has a forced component, right? So we're now, when we talk about this, we're always looking at people who are forced to leave their homes, their communities because of the impacts of climate change. You recalled in your intro the impact of, of hurricanes, uh, the hurricanes in 17, and that was sort of the, the, 
the last very known instance of massive displacement that we have uh, that we have registered. But there's been others, right? We know of, of Hurricane uh, Dorian in the Bahamas in 2019, for instance. Um, even last year, it was maybe a, a less active hurricane season, but we also had the example of Hurricane Ida, uh, which led to, to evacuations in Cuba in particular. So I would tend to say that uh, we know from research uh, that, that displacement due to climate change is mostly oriented towards these sudden onset impacts, right? Hurricanes, floods that affect uh, Caribbean islands regularly. So we see patterns of displacement that move along these massive events. Um, and so it, it really depends on, on what's the hurricane season that we will have, right? That's just starting now in, in May, June. So we will see really according to the projection. So we know that that climate displacement affects the most vulnerable people uh, disproportionately, and that's a very important part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. But we also know that displacement is not the only movement that's triggered by climate change, right? We have more voluntary forms of migration, we have planned relocations, we have immobility that we can also discuss. But generally what we know is that indeed Caribbean populations are very exposed and born vulnerable to sudden onset events, and that this sudden onset trigger various forms of displacement, including evacuations. And I think we have to consider them in the in the picture as well. Agreed. I think the, across the board, or at least um, over the past 10 years or so, we have all kind of generally agreed that yes, climate migration, yes, you know, specifically affecting um, Caribbean populations is a thing. And, and, you know, we should really, really be focusing on kind of durable solutions and kind of getting an, a sense and, and an idea of what is currently out there. But I think it's safe to say that there have also been some challenges to documenting climate migration, especially in the Caribbean. Could you talk a little bit about why that is? Sure, sure. That's a very good point. So yes, uh, you're entirely right. We know now and there's research that climate migration is obviously a reality, right? And if you take publications like the latest uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it has a, a, a chapter dedicated to small island developing states, and it recognizes obviously the impacts of, of climate change on mobility, right? Now, we've talked earlier about uh, sudden onset displacement, right? When you get, let's say, a hurricane and people are displaced, that's the more sort of obvious uh, impact of climate change on mobility, right? Because you can directly attribute the, the displacement of persons because their communities are flooded. But if we sort of move uh, towards more a slower onset impact of climate change, and I'm thinking about things like droughts uh, or, or, or sea level rise, that's when your question gets really relevant, right? Because we have a difficulty in attributing the movement to the impacts of climate change. Typically, people will say, oh, I'm moving because, you know, I'm looking for better employment or because I don't have, you know, livelihood opportunities in my communities. But we know there's also climate impacts that, ha that are affecting those livelihoods, right? And and things like water scarcity, it's, it's probably not the first thing that comes to mind when we think about the Caribbean, right? But we know there are islands in the Caribbean that suffer from and will increasingly suffer from water scarcity. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the linkages with, with mobility? Where are people going to work? Where are they going to go? Now, it is difficult because, you know, even for people who are migrating, it's difficult for them sometimes to see the climate sort of factor driving their movement, right? But if we think that, that Caribbean countries, uh, a lot of livelihoods are depending on things like the tourism sector, or even in some places agriculture, then we see, right, I mean, people may lose their livelihoods. We know, for instance, their projections at one meter sea level rise may inundate almost 30% of coastal resorts. These are people that will lose their jobs and may have to move. And, but, but that's where sort of the impacts are difficult to really isolate from, from other drivers of, of human mobility. Right. So because of the, the slower processes of climate change, like coastal erosion and drought or land degradation, those types of things, those those things take a lot of time to reveal themselves and they're harder to capture. And so that's one of the reasons as to why like, 
it's hard to document climate migration. And then as you were saying as well, it's kind of been tied into kind of economic and political livelihoods as well. And so, you know, some people might then say, well, they're not fleeing because of the environment, they're fleeing because of these political crises or, or these uh, economic reasons. When in reality, sometimes the climate and the economic reasons go, go hand in hand. Are there any other reasons as to why you think it's hard to deduce the multiple drivers of climate change or really uh, causes of migration? Or, or is it kind of just tied into your previous answer? Maybe also we can bring the issue of data, right? And, 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 and that's an important question here, right? How do we know? Or, because that's a question I get all the time, you know, like, all right, can you tell me how many people are moving, right? And, and obviously the easy data we have is the disaster displacement because that's sort of easy to count, right? You, got, you go to a shelter, you count how many people are in a shelter, they were displaced, right? Mm-hmm. When you go into those sort of more slower onset processes, sea level rise, coastal erosion, that's harder to count, you know, because we're not counting, you know, even internal migration, you can get censuses, but, you know, censuses do not ask drivers of mobility, international movements, they often don't have a, a little box to tick where it says, oh, you know, I move because climate impacts. So when we don't have the sort of hard data, it's very difficult to say, right, I mean, how many people, right? We don't know exactly, we can make projections, but we, it's very difficult to count them. Right, right. Could you talk a little bit about funding? Does that play a role too and why it's hard to document climate migration? Like, is there a lack of funding around the subject area within the field? But that's a very good question. So there, there's, uh, as you know, a sort of traditional request from Caribbean countries to have an easier access to climate funding, um, to climate finance. Mm-hmm. And it's a very legitimate uh, request and demand, right? Because of the rules of how climate finance work and the issue that, that Caribbean countries are oftentimes, you know, uh, medium to high income economies, right? They don't have an easy access to climate finance. And even that applies even more to, to climate mobilities, where it's very difficult to leverage uh, funding. So the sort of funding that we see uh, is oriented towards either hard sort of climate adaptation, which is a very important part of the picture, but not necessarily looking at some of the challenges that that we can talk about related to climate migration, including internal migration, urbanization, protection gaps, and and, and we can talk about them a bit more. So I would say there's definitely sort of a lack of funding uh, in a a general scope, but some of the things that I, I would think that they really require some technical expertise, right, in terms of, right, how do we capture better people moving because of climate change? Could we make some sort of changes in immigration forms, for instance, of Caribbean countries that would help us, you know, to say, all right, I mean, X many people really came to this other place because, you know, of a disaster, of a hurricane. Some things may not be that expensive and, 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 and it's really a matter of technical expertise and really moving forward with, with that agenda. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for answering that. Okay, so we're going to kind of move into the second portion now of the podcast, stepping away from general trends to kind of get a little bit into the greedy nitty of of legal protection. So I just actually wrote a paper on <laughs> the, the gaps or why the gaps exist um, in the provision of climate displaced populations for my forced migration and refugees course at LSC. Yeah, so so as I've just said, there exists some gaps in the legal protection of environmentally displaced persons. I'm going to just throw it out there. Why? <laughs> right. So you may be able to answer this better than I do. But but basically, because as you very well know, there's not, there's not a convention, there's not a status for persons displaced because of climate change. Now, I think it's important and, and sort of not necessarily only in legal terms, but to differentiate or, or to sort of understand the difference between internal migration and cross-border migration, right? I mean, because obviously the, the sort of approaches are quite different, right? Because oftentimes, you know, cross-border migration, it gets addressed in, in terms of migration law, in terms of international protection, right? 
Whereas internal migration or internal displacement, it's the framework of the of the guiding principles on internal displacement. It's on the responsibility of the same state. There's no sort of migration issues here, right? Even if I'm going to put an asterisk there because we can also talk about the situation of migrants who are affected by disaster in a third country. But let's not go too much into detail. I would say that the, when we talk about the protection gap, we often refer to the situation of people crossing borders because of climate change or because of disaster, right? And, and I think a lot of the discussion is focused on the difference that they have with the sort of more traditional refugee populations, right? Which have a dedicated convention and dedicated international protection, right? As we know, disasters are not mentioned in the 51 Geneva Convention as the grounds for, for refugee status. And therefore, you know, there's this sort of, yeah, gray status maybe of people who left because of disasters. They're not per se economic migrants or what we call the economic migrants. They're not refugees. So there's this in between and there's a strong protection need of some of these populations who may have lost everything. There's obviously gender considerations on these issues, no gender-based violence. There's a protection gap there as well. So we often talk about that protection gap in the sense of there's no specific status to protect these persons, even if, you know, Human rights law, obviously, and international humanitarian law applies to their situation as well. But that specificity is not addressed. And maybe that's also what, what emerged in, in when the Nansen Initiative for the Protection of People Displaced Across Border emerged, right? The idea that there needed to be some, some principles, some recommendations to enhance the protection of these of these populations who do not fall under traditional protection protection uh, mechanisms. Yeah. And and I think one of the other besides the which is arguably what the majority of the literature talks about is this idea that there are some current exclusions, you know, from legal treaties of climate and environmental factors. Therefore, they they as in the people who are displaced by climate change or environmental factors are therefore not included in those legal protections. I've also seen some literature point to anti-immigrant sentiment as well as one of the reasons as to why there exists some gaps in legal protection. What are your thoughts on that? I would think that 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 discussion on anti-immigrant is, I mean, is obviously a part of the picture. And I'm, I'm wondering what are the sort of climate dimensions to it, right? And whether a different sort of sort of focus applies to climate migrants when compared to sort of more traditional migrants. I would say that the the anti-migrant rhetoric is potentially damaging across board and not only for climate migration, right? However, yeah, I mean, it is part of the picture uh, because, you know, I mean, when we understand that migrants need protection when they're displaced by climate change, they need a sort of 360 protection, right? And obviously, anti-migrant sentiments can play into that. And, and unfortunately, there's been a narrative that, that at least from IOM, we really don't, don't support and has been sort of to leverage a certain fear of migration to move forward climate action, right? And, and I think that... That has been a bit damaging to the to the narrative because I don't think that it is. I mean, I don't think we should say X people may get to a country. That's not what should sort of promote climate action. I mean, climate action should be carried out by itself, not not sort of manipulating the fear of migration. That's actually sort of negative and 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 can bring actually be counterproductive, right? right. Uh, because we've seen that countries. I mean, when when you tell them, right, if you don't take climate action, migrants will arrive. They don't take climate action. They just raise higher borders right sure. and and, uh, and so you have a, a counter yeah a counterproductive effect on that side right but certainly the anti-migrant um, rhetoric and narrative is something that needs to be addressed uh, right. in, the, in the climate change discussion too so related to this listeners of, of this podcast episode will notice that we aren't using the term 
refugee to describe those who are displaced due to environmental climate factors. And we've talked a little bit about it. It's because, because they don't have those legal protections. What terms do people use instead? Right. That's, that's a very good question. So to, just to go back on, on that refugee, because indeed, I mean, we, we're still seeing it in the, in the press and every day and in papers. And, and, and I just yeah. saw very recently the, the special reporter on the rights of, of persons affected by climate change mentioned the word climate refugee. But indeed, yeah, it's because, you know, because of the 51 convention, there's no legal grounds for, for, for a person displaced by climate change to, to ask for refugee status, even if the reality is somewhat complex, right? Because as, as, as UNHCR rightly points out, the fact that they're displaced by climate doesn't exclude them to have claims for refugee because they can also be sort of circumstances of violence, of, of exclusion, of discrimination in their countries, right? So one thing basically does not prevent the other somehow right and and uh, and the, the obviously the Cartagena declaration has a sort of an ample view of, of of the grounds for refugee that includes circumstances that disrupt public order that could potentially be applied right even if it's not often applied in the Americas we've seen for instance and this is not climate related but it's geophysical right but after the the Haiti earthquake of, of 2010 we saw I think it was Ecuador which granted uh, refugee status to, to some Asian migrants who had left because of the hurry, of the earthquake, not giving the earthquake as the main reason, but the circumstances of lawlessness and, and public disorder and and, uh, and gang activity that it had created right so there we see the intertwining of all these factors of migration that we had addressed before. So in IOM we often use the term climate migrants right? And that's because for us, for IOM, migration really expands across all forms of mobility somehow, right? So we just climate migration to define everything in, in a sort of more UN, UN Convention of Climate Change oriented glossary, we'll talk about human mobility, right? And that would encompass migration, which is sort of thought to be more voluntary displacement and planned relocation. So I guess it depends a lot on, on what are the specific movements we're referring to, right? For us, we say climate migrants is a general term. We can use displaced persons where there's internal displacement, cross-border displacement, or internal displacement. We can use, you know, uh, relocated populations in, in cases of, of planned relocation. Yeah, and I've also seen uh, environmentally induced, more like a climate displaced. So there's a ton of terms that are still being used, but even with those that are arguably perhaps more relevant for kind of the context and for the legal protections. As you said, we still see environmental refugees, climate refugees. What are some of the benefits? Like why are those terms still being used even if, you know, it kind of gives off to the audience that these folks are being, you know, legally protected even if they aren't? Yeah, it has an imagery that's very, that compels a narrative that's very interesting for people and for readers. And we see it in the media a lot, right? And, and I think people understand when we talk about climate refugees, it's people who have no other option, right? The problem is, as we talked earlier, it has protection implications, right? And that's what sort of the experts and international organizations are, are much more cautious in using the term, right? Because it, it can have also negative impacts in terms of diluting what, what the, the protection of traditional refugees, right? Because you cannot call everyone a refugee because then what, what does it mean, right? Yeah, the term gives kind of like sense of, of dire urgency, but in the in the same breath, it might harm kind of the existing protections for others, which actually is a, a question that I have for you later, or it might even, I don't know, give a sense of complacency. You know, if we call them climate refugees, the kind of immediate thought then is that they are protected 
when in the reality is they aren't and solutions can need to be thought of and developed. And so if we kind of continue to use that term, we might not get the push that's needed to create the future solutions as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also if I, if I may just, uh, just a, a very quick thought on it, because I, I remember uh, a discussion that took place some years ago on, on Pacific islands, right. And, and the use of refugees, right. And, and them saying, right, we do not want to be called refugees. We want solutions to stay in place. Right. And sort of that narrative presents like, all right, let, let's look for solutions here. They're going to have to move. Right. And, and they're saying, no, I mean, we want to stay. I mean, the, our first option is to help us stay in our communities. Right. We don't want that sort of discussion on climate refugees. We want resilience. We want climate adaptation. We want climate mitigation. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting sort of ambivalence on, the, on, on these terms. Can you talk a little bit about what the current state of legislation on climate migration in Latin America or in the Caribbean, perhaps as you've kind of already hinted at, you've hinted at the Cartena uh, Declaration as well? Yeah, I, I would say that the, 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 there's a lot of different status of where we're at, right, in sort of addressing climate, climate migration in general. Generally, I would say that what has moved a lot is global frameworks, right? I mean, we know there's global frameworks that address this issue. They've been increasing in number and in importance and in sort of dimensions to, to the interaction between climate change and migration, including also environment uh, in, a, in, a general, in a more general way, right? But we know the, the, the Paris Agreement created a task force on displacement that has recommendations that have been, uh, that have been uh, approved by, the, by the, United, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The Global Compact on Migration, I think is the most, personally, I think is the most sort of comprehensive framework which looks at interaction with climate migration. And these days, uh, this week of, of 17 May, we have the, what we call the International Migration Review Forum. So in New York these days, all countries which are part of the global compact, they're reviewing progress, they're addressing gaps. So it's also a very interesting discussion on what have countries done for the past four years into addressing the, the, the climate drivers of migration. We have the Sendai Framework on Disaster Reduction. We have the Nansen Protection Agenda. So there's a lot of global progress now. Now, what does it mean in the region? As you said, Cartagena is interesting because it expands a bit the, the, the refugee de the definition to include you know, events disrupt in public order. Not many countries have included the Cartagena definition in their own refugee laws, right? So there's obviously a, a, an ambivalent implementation of Cartagena. And generally speaking, as we said earlier, climate drivers are often not used to, to, to protect uh, persons displaced by, by climate change from a refugee standpoint. What we're seeing instead is a lot of countries are progressing on their approach to climate migration from different perspectives. Many of them are doing it from climate law, right? So we're seeing countries like Guatemala, for instance, include a chapter on human mobility in their climate change strategy. Or a country like Peru, included in their law, the, the, the task given to the environment ministry to develop a specific plan of action on, plan, on, plan, on climate migration. Chile is doing something similarly. They're producing guidelines on climate migration. We've also seen at the, and that's very recent as well, but the Inter-American Court on Human Rights just released a, a resolution on, climate, on the climate emergency, giving states the obligation to protect migrants uh, on the move because of climate change. So we're seeing all these different sort of processes, right? Now, the question is obviously, what does it mean for people on the ground, right? For communities, for migrants? And that's where sort of, I think, the gap is still there. Maybe the progress that, that I think it's, we can talk about is on planned relocations, because we're right. seeing an increase in, in, in actions towards planned relocations to relocate people who are in areas that are really exposed to climate hazards, and that includes the, the Caribbean as well. And at IOM, we just released a publication on planned relocations in the Caribbean using five countries as, as case study, and we look at the, the different experiences that countries have encountered in relocating populations, right? And I think that's a very interesting process. 
And it ties to the discussion we're having on loss and damage, because a lot of Caribbean countries, they're asking for technical assistance to better carry out these, these planned relocations. So in summary, I would say that, yeah, the progress is, is a bit uneven, I would say. And it relates a lot on different provisions, including migration law as well. And in the Caribbean in particular, free movement has been leveraged as a, as a critical form of, of enabling mobility for, for persons affected by disasters. Okay, so I am going to throw some prodding statements, provocations at you, just to get a sense of your thoughts on, on a couple different areas related to climate migration. So the first being, neither you, the United States nor the United Kingdom is ready to handle an influx of climate refugees or environmentally displaced persons or climate migrants. I would, I, would, I would respond to that, that it depends what you call by ready, right? I mean, do they have the sort of systems in place? So you could argue that some system exists, right? I mean, the U.S., for instance, has granted temporary protection status uh, to some people, you know, to protect them from deportation in particular because their country has been affected by a disaster. And there was this, this report by the White House last year recommending uh, to look again at the protection that we afford people displaced by disasters, right? So there is supposedly a conversation. But I think it plays into, and, 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 and tying in the United Kingdom, I think it plays to what we were saying earlier, right? The, the anti-migration or the, or the, the sort of yeah, barriers to, to movement. Indeed, you know, I mean, it would be difficult to imagine, you know, if, if millions of people were displaced by a disaster and, and wanted to reach the US or the UK, how these countries would react. And I think it, it, it ties into a more general migration policy issue. I would say uh, it's a political issue. I would say they're more ready now than they were four years ago, for instance, in the U.S. in particular. Um, It's a matter of migration policy. Yeah. Okay, let me throw another one at you. Last year, I I served as a member of the U.S.-U.K. Youth Coalition on Climate Policy. We produced four briefs in the lead up to COP26, and the brief that I co-led focused on forced migration due to climate change and um, its impacts on youth mental health. And so on that topic, here's the second kind of prodding statement. Forced migration causes a break in cultural and historical ties with home countries for people, causing an increase in mental health issues later, especially for young people. However, the mental health services across the board, but even within the US, even within the UK and elsewhere are not necessarily equipped for this kind of expected upkeep or uptake. What are your thoughts on that? Now, I would generally agree that, that we have not looked uh, enough into the impacts of, of displacement in terms of yeah. mental health, right? And I'm not, I mean, you could think about the US, right? Because we, we, I mean, we sort of, the, the, the previous statement was about, you know, would the US sort of be ready for climate uh, arrivals? But I mean, we have to understand that, that the US is, is year by year one of the countries in the Americas most affected by climate displacement, right? We tend to forget that, that the US is a country of climate displacement because right. of wildfires, because of hurricanes that there's a huge discussion in the U.S. on managed retreat, on planned relocation. And, and I do think that, you know, I mean, again, it ties to the larger sort of healthcare systems, right? But I don't think that that systems are prepared for, for the mental or, the, I mean, more should be done to account for the mental health impacts of, of displacement, right? And, and, and it can take various forms. As you said, you know, people are leaving their, their sort of lands or culture. There's also, I mean, a feeling of losing one's house, right? And, and I mean, it doesn't need to be as big as the community. In, in, in other places, what we're seeing is that the loss indeed of, of traditional community livelihoods and areas is a critical part of sort of mental health issues, right? And we're seeing indigenous people in particular who are forced to leave their lands because of climate impacts and they really have a very hard time doing so because some of these areas are sacred to them, right? And I'm thinking about the Andes, for instance, the Andean mountains and the idea that, you know, 
uh, with the study in, in in Peru, you know, and and some of the some of the glaciers they're sacred, right? And we're saying that you know, I mean, there's there's a, such a, a high rate of of glacier melt, you know, that this, I mean. People are losing these glaciers, which are sacred to them, right? And obviously, that has implications in terms of mental health. We're seeing also there are studies. I'm thinking about Jamaica in particular of of the mental toll of urbanization, right? And and changing a, a rural setting for an urban setting, right? And how that affects you know your mental well-being with a discriminated impact on women and girls, right? And women and girls suffer more in terms of mental health. The change, you know, from rural areas to urban areas. So I think all of these things need to be part of the conversation, and I would agree that that more needs to be done to to account for them. Yeah, and I and I just wanted to tack on to your comment about um, you know continental U.S. you know areas are also experiencing um, much of what the Caribbean is also experiencing. One of the um, examples that we highlighted within our policy brief was actually in Louisiana, Isle of Jean Charles, which is an indigenous area. They've lost approximately ninety percent of their land over the past you know fifty plus years, and I believe it was in two thousand and two or two thousand and three you know, that local community got together with with the government essentially to find a new spot for relocation and have since been slowly relocating folks further inland in Louisiana as well. And so, yeah, it, it is not just going to be, you know, folks coming from Latin America or the Caribbean to the U.S. or the U.K., but it'll be from everywhere as well, internal. And, and if I'm not mistaken, a lot of what climate migration is, is internal displacement. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we'll definitely be seeing a lot of that within the U.S. too. Yeah, and and, and uh, maybe taking as well to your to your example of Ville Saint Charles. I mean, you can see you said yeah. I mean, it's been going on for years, right? So I think only that part really speaks to to the to the difficulties of this process, right? I mean, how it entails into the community well-being and the community, you know, lands, and what does it mean? Where do you move, you know? And 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 we've seen a lot of issues with land relocations and. And they have a sort of, not parallel, but a similar example in Panama, in the Gunayal Islands. These are indigenous populations that live in islands that are also, you know, are going to be sort of devastated by sea level rise. And it's been very hard to, to sort of enable a, 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 a good plan relocation because of all the challenges that are involved, right? So that conversation is really, I think, fascinating in terms of, of public policy. Absolutely. And the the last provocation prodding statement, and this is now uh, in relation to the 1951 convention and the gaps in protection that we were speaking about earlier, providing protection for environmental, you know, induced displacement persons takes away attention and funding from and protection for convention refugees, the refugees who are protected underneath the 1951 convention. It's a very difficult question because, I mean, so far, I mean, there are sort of different areas of attention, right? But I do because, I mean, I, I, before before doing my, what I do now, I worked in in, uh, in donor relations at IOM, right? And 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 we know that that you know money is not infinite, you know, and we're seeing it very recently with the Ukraine crisis and some donors. And I say, oh, you know, I mean, we got, I mean, we don't have infinite pools of money, you know. If we have a, an increased attention to the Ukraine situation, I mean, we cannot sort of give as much attention to other crises, right? So right. indeed, if you were mm-hmm. to think about sort of in a finite resources world, you know, if you start sort of uh, donors start paying an increased attention to people displaced by climate change and when there's a massive disaster like the 17 hurricane season, that's what they do. It can affect uh, sort of, you know, other areas of work. I do think that, I mean, the advent the advantage of uh, that's a hard word right but something that the 51 conventions has that it has enshrined refugee protection in law right and and so sort of countries understand there's an obligation to to give protection to persons who require protection because of the 51 convention right so hopefully the the idea i think uh, and the advantage that that's sort of set in stone 
and sort of the, the the attention towards refugee persons would come you know from a different attention area right and in particular from climate change and and climate finance the issue as well is the the extent to which climate finance is still very much oriented towards mitigation more than adaptation right um and the attention to people on the move falls obviously more within the adaptation realm even uh, and almost in the loss and damage than in the mitigation right and and i think it's easier for donors to think about you know investing in social solar panels to be very very you know uh, simplistic then in you know helping a community of 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 a caribbean island move because they're exposed right i mean it's cheaper it's easier and it and it speaks uh, also to the to the you know mitigating before the impact right the problem is the impact we know it's going to be there so we should do both things at the same time yeah yeah <laughs> the problem is that a lot of areas are already experiencing right climate change i mean the amount of people who left the virgin islands after the 2017 hurricanes alone and have not yet returned um mm-hmm. and probably won't because of of as we've earlier discussed kind of this impending rise in global warming it's it's shocking and it's alarming we actually just experienced a, a massive drop in population size with the 2020 census that just got released originally from the 2010 to 2020 that time period, we had about 106,000 persons and now have just over 80,000 that were documented within the census. But again, it's not just right. <laughs> climate migration. And, and you don't ask them, right? Yeah. And, and that census, you, you cannot ask, you know, why did your... Obviously, the census, you cannot ask people who left because right. they're not there, right? Right. But you're not asking, you know, why did your brother move? Why did your sister move? You're not asking those questions. So exactly. it's very difficult to say, right? Yep, Absolutely. Okay, so now we're going to kind of move away from kind of these existing gaps in legal protection and, you know, the the prodding statements to talk a little bit about uh, the future. Looking forward at what can be done to serve this this vulnerable at-risk population. And also, I think it would be a great, you know, time to highlight any organizations as well that are doing this really important work. So this is a really big question. It was a question that got posed to us by uh, our professors as well. But what do, what do you believe is the way forward? Is it expanding the 1951 convention to include, you know, language around protecting environmentally displaced persons? Or is it creating an entirely new legal document just for, you know, climate displaced populations? Or is it something completely different? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. It's hard for me to sort of say what what's the best solution, right? Because I mean, I, I would say the best solution is the one that states will agree to, right? I mean, and you know, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, because I mean, for for IOM, I mean, obviously, the the highest rate of protection is the best, right? The the problem is what states want to do and how do they want to do it. Right. I think that to me, and there there's fears that are well founded on the expansion of 51, and and the fears that are actually we're gonna actually it's gonna be counterproductive, and and I mean. There's not sort of a, a global agreement to expand protection. Right. I, I would tend to think that if there's any agreement, it's to reduce protection, right? So uh, I think that, that that's the fear in opening the 51 convention that no one wants to take, right? Including HCR, right? Because they fear that, you know, if we open the discussion on the 51 convention, it may take us backwards rather than, than forward. On a, on a specific convention, I would think that that could be very good in the sense that it could really be sort of tailored to the needs that we know of, you know, of, of, of persons displaced by climate change. The problem is that Nansen shows us the, the example of the Nansen Initiative, which, as you know, is, is a sort of non-binding agreement by states, is that countries are way more comfortable into non-binding recommendation, best practices, that really having sort of strong obligations, Right. right? 
and, and and I mean, you were in COP. I mean, if, if I mean, if those negotiations are difficult, imagine you know merging the the, the those negotiations with migration discussions. I mean, yeah. you would never you know you would never do a, a single a single word of, of of a convention, and everyone would agree, right? Yeah. So, to me, and 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 I don't want to sound pessimistic or negative because I think there's a lot of opportunities, but I think that you know moving forward with what we have and in, and, and improving it and and looking at gaps uh, in the meantime i think it's the it's it's sort of the way that we need to go for now right and some of it is going to be non-binding and handsome some of it are migration laws humanitarian visas we're advocating all the time for countries to enable access to, and, and protection to persons displaced by borders the the caribbean right I and mean, the, the the eastern caribbean has the free movement right under the under the oics the organization of eastern caribbean states so there are six countries or seven where, where people can travel across borders without any visas and restrictions, right? And that's what's being used to, in, in, when hurricanes. Now, is that enough? Probably not. You know, probably things need to be improved. And, and, and we're always talking about contingent rights. You know, what rights do you get when you move? It's not only moving, right? So you have to access to health, to education, to social protection. Things can be improved. We have a good basis, but we need to improve them, right? Planned relocations, the same, you know, that's internal policy, right? On planned relocations, they can improve. We know very well because there's a lot of challenges on planned relocation. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to have a one-size-fits-all solution like, right, let's do another convention. I, I think that's, for, for now, a bit unrealistic. But I think that, you know, we need to push countries to do better, to, you know, look at, at, at other examples like global frameworks and really to do better on a case-by-case basis and really solving, you know, what are the problems. Because we also, and, and part of the other conversation as well, is that, Climate migration or climate mobility is very different in Peru than it is in in, in Dominica or, or in the U.S. Right, so you need sort of tailored solution. There's obviously best best you know best practices, but you need really to look like what are the problems I'm trying to tackle. You know, who are the populations that are going to suffer most? What are the gender impacts? How does it affect indigenous populations, elderly people? You need to tailor the solutions. So I would say really that it's going to be a, a sort of or, or or the ideal would be a one by one accompanied by sort of global frameworks and regional frameworks. So my, my last question, are there any organizations in the Caribbean, you know, who are currently helping climate displaced people or any organizations currently at the, the forefront that you know that you wish to highlight or shout out um, in the podcast? I know there might be some folks who, you know, feel super invigorated after listening who might be looking for action. <laughs> I would say, I mean, it's 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 hard so far. I mean, we're looking into changing that, but it's, it's hard to look at really organizations which are specifically addressing all the all the sort of all the very wide scope of climate migration as we have been describing it, right? Um, and we have not talked even about things like immobility, which also would need to be addressed. But you know, there's there's obviously regional institutions which are looking at disaster risk reduction. Sedima is the is the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency, and they they do a tremendous work in in disaster risk reduction, in humanitarian response. So that's crucial, you know, for displaced person, wherever they are. Um, the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center does that with more on sort of a, a more you know climate change oriented way and. I think that, you know, because we've talked so much about policies, I think it's important, you know, that that the fact that, you know, seeds, uh, small island developing states have really managed to have a, a sort of united voice. Um, and in the Caribbean, we've seen sort of very um, prominent speakers, right? And I'm thinking about the, the prime minister of Barbados, Mia, Mia, Mia Mormodi, who has really spoken about, you know, the impact of climate change on migration. They need to look at, you know, cross-border displacement in the Caribbean. So that that sort of leadership is really is really awesome. 
and, and it translates into sort of the, the Caribbean level. And, and, and this year, I think that the, the, the association of, of small island states presidencies with Antigua and Barbuda, and I think there's a conversation to be had with the Pacific that, that's really enriching. In terms of the, of the civil society, maybe there are some organizations that are looking at, at, at really climate adaptation, right? And I'm thinking about Canary, uh, in particular in Trinidad and Tobago. We want to work and we're planning to work with them moving forward on climate migration, because I do think that, that the civil society has a critical role to play, in particular from a human rights perspective, right? Because, you know, oftentimes we speak about, you know, right, these people move, where they go, they're relocated. There are very strong human rights implications to all of this, right? Uh, so we want to work with the civil society. So I, I can say stay tuned and maybe the next podcast we will do on, on, on civil society engagement. But we want to work with the civil society in the Caribbean in different countries to really look at how they how they engage in climate migration who do they speak to how they engage with populations but also with the government you know how they can do sort of a a, a yeah they can they can engage in a discussion to say right i mean who are the populations who are moving where are they going do we need to relocate someone how are their rights protected right to life right to access to services etc etc so there's a really a lot of people working on these issues and the academia in particular, maybe I will finish with that. Is a, I think there's a lot of academia sort of knowledge, right? In the, in the University of the West Indies, in the University of the Bahamas, there's a center of, on, on disaster research. So there's really very good work being done across the Caribbean that we need really to pull together to, to address these issues. Wonderful. Thank you for highlighting all of those different areas. Civil societies, we've got some universities in there, which goes to essentially just show this message that I've seen kind of arise basically out of COP26, which is that every single person, every single sector needs to be thinking about climate broadly, but it would be great too for more folks to start thinking about climate migration, you know, because it's kind of an all hands on deck situation right now. Yes. There was, the, uh, uh, as I said, you know, we had the, the, the International Migration Review Forum these days in New York. And, the, and, and just now, actually, the, the representative of the Pacific just said that every minister should be a climate minister. And I sort of think that applies here, right? That everyone yeah. should understand the consequences of their actions in terms of climate change and, and the protection of persons and, and, their, and their mobility as well. Awesome. All right. Well, Pablo, thank you so much for joining me today. Just on a personal note, as a student of, of climate change and with an interest in returning back home to the Virgin Islands in particular, it has truly been an honor to chat with you. And I think I can speak for a lot of the people who will be listening in the future to this podcast when I say that they're super grateful for the opportunity you know, to learn about such an important intersection in the Caribbean. Climate migration is happening, will continue to happen if we you know, aren't able to necessarily reduce our global greenhouse gas footprint. Um, and so it's of the utmost importance that we continue to keep having these conversations and, and continue to push for legal protection for such an at-risk population. So again, thank you for, for chatting with me. Thank you very much. It's been really, 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 really a pleasure. And, and I hope that, that people are interested and I remain available for any future conversations. Thanks for listening to this episode in season two of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE and made possible by the Eden Catalyst Fund. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.